Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Welcome back to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. It's Melissa Joy here today, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Adam Wadi, who is an HR consultant and senior account manager at Advanced Insurance. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Melissa. Thank you. Well, today we're going to be talking about open enrollment, which is something that many Americans have to go through in the fourth quarter each year um, so that they make selections for their benefits at their employer for the following year. Adam, as we get started, can you give me a little background about, um, A, what you do when it comes to open enrollment and also how you got to doing this? Yeah. So um, back to my background first, I, I had my BBA in finance through, I was a former advisor. So I, I met a lot of people and a lot of individuals and companies that had issues with healthcare. And it always seemed to be with, what do I do? How do I, you know, why is it so much money? So it almost kind of morphed into this healthcare or, or employee benefits kind of world. And it, it intrigued me so much that I actually went back to school and got my master's in HR. Um, but HR actually uh, HR and benefits really kind of drives my uh, boat, so to speak. It's I'm, I'm really, it really it's intriguing because it can be very complicated. And I pride myself in trying to make the complicated easy. Well, that's exactly why we need you for this conversation. <laughs> and as a financial planner, so much of your financial future is dependent upon healthcare, especially. I mean, mm-hmm. we factor in healthcare costs separately from our other retirement costs. And it's a huge deal for working Americans as well. And for almost all of our listeners, I have to think. Um, So today we're going to dive into open enrollment, the benefits that you choose, but a big portion of that, and we might as well start right with that big rock, is your healthcare decisions through your employer. Um, so tell me first, like, what does open enrollment mean? I think we, many of us have gone through it, but but give us the definition. Well, open enrollment is really the one time a year that your employer gives you options to make changes, ads, maybe drop coverage without any kind of uh, what they call qualifying event. So if I decided I want, I don't want the PPO anymore and I want to go on the HMO because it's a little cheaper, I can do that during open enrollment. Or let's say I don't want dental anymore, or I don't want vision. I could drop it then, or even add it if I didn't have it. So there's only certain times of the year where you can do that, and one of them is open enrollment. Perfect. And what type? Of, what time of year does that come up? For most people, um, I would say it's usually November, um, November, December for January coverage. Uh, and usually companies will give you about two weeks to make those decisions. Sometimes they're longer and sometimes they're shorter. Uh, but a lot of large companies are required to give you an open enrollment. Perfect. Well, let's dive right into healthcare decisions because that is probably for, for most the biggest decision that you need to make. And and you threw around a couple, um, a co- some alphabet soup, HMO and PPO. Yeah. 
and I know there's some others out there as well. Um, tell me the difference between an HMO and, and what is an HMO versus what is a PPO? So an HMO is what they call a health maintenance organization. And what that does is basically your primary care physician or the doctor that you see to for everything is going to manage your care. So anytime you want to go see, like, say, a knee specialist or a gastroenterologist, you can't just go and see that gastroenterologist or that orthopedist. You first have to see your primary care physician, and then he would refer to you a um, an orthopedist or a gastroenterologist that he works with or that he feels is superior to some. And for the most part, you're usually going to go to a doctor that your other doctor does refer to. Um, it's much easier now than it has been in the past. Before, it was really painful of getting referrals with an HMO. You'd have to get that piece of paper, take that piece of paper back to the other doctor, get that signed, take it back to the other doctor, get it signed, and then send it over to the carrier. You don't have to do that anymore. Most offices now have a dedicated person specifically for referrals that handle all of the paperwork behind the scenes. A PPO, it gives you the flexibility where I don't have to get that referral from that doctor. If there's a doctor that I really want to see, I can go see them. And the difference, major difference between the PPO and HMOs as well is not only do you have flexibility in the PPO, you can see anybody you want. So a PPO has an in-network and out-of-network benefit where the HMO only has an in-network benefit. So that means you can only see a doctor in the network. On a PPO, there's an in-network and out-of-network where you can see that doctor within the network for reduced cost. But if you don't want to see a particular doctor or you have a particular doctor that you desperately need to see or want to see, a lot of the carriers of PPO will say, sure, you can go see them, but there's a different benefit structure and you may have to pay a lot more out of pocket. That's informative. So then there's a cost differential in some cases between the two? Yes, because of that flexibility, typically in the PPOs tend to be much more expensive than the HMO. Um, but their benefits are also much more relaxed um, to where a lot of times in an HMO, because they're so restrictive in, in doctors, it's also restrictive when it comes to certain services, it can be more restrictive too. That means they just make you kind of jump through a little more hoops because the savings are so much. Um, mm -hmm. They just don't want to make sure that you're doing needless surgeries or, or taking needless medications. A lot of times they want you to do what they call step therapy or is there a me medical necessity? for this surgery or this procedure. So how would a family evaluate if they had the choice? Cause this is an assumption. Sometimes the employer just says, here's your, do you want this insurance or not? Right. Um, but if you have a choice between two different coverages, how can you make an informed decision about which makes the most sense to you? I look at my doctors first. Um, if all of my doctors are within the HMO, it makes sense to kind of go to the HMO. A lot of times I'm saving money in premium and I've already got relationships with both that PCP or that primary care physician and my specialist, whether it be an orthopedist or a gastroenterologist like I had earlier. So that's why I look at the HMO. Now, if none of your doctors are in the HMO and you have a great relationship with those doctors and you don't want to lose your doctor, that's where the PPO comes into play. And then there's an additional kind of wrinkle which is if you choose a type of plan called a high deductible plan, then you may also be eligible or you would be eligible for a health savings account in many cases. Yes, and health savings accounts are great. Um, I'm a huge proponent of health savings account, mainly because of the tax advantage. Not only does it help um, to for uh, 
saving away dollars for medical expenses further down the road. But it also helps, you can use it as a retirement vehicle because again, it grows or you can put it in an HSA account tax-free. It grows tax-free. And if you use it for any medical expense, it's deducted tax-free or it's taken out, spent tax-free. But you can also use that for anything you want after the fact. So if you if you use that expense to say, I don't know, I want to buy a boat later when I retire, again, I just pay ordinary income tax if I'm at the age. So, and it's also not considered when it comes time for um, like a 401k. They also take advantage of uh, FICA taxes and social security tax where HSAs do not. So HSAs are completely tax-free and void of any taxes. They're very, very attractive for in your world, Adam, and in mine. And mm-hmm. they're misunderstood or or just less understood because they're newer. And also they're just jumbled into this time of year and in your decisions that are really focusing on, well, that's a bucket of money I should spend right. this year. Mm-hmm. So in order to qualify for a health savings account, though, you need to make the decision if you have the option of a high deductible plan. Is that correct? And tell me what that is. Yeah. So they have what they call qualified high deductible plans. So in order for it to be a qualified high deductible plan, it cannot have any um, first dollar coverage. And what I mean that it, it can't have office visit coverage or um, prescription coverage before the deductible is met. So this means if I get sick and I have to go see a primary care physician, I'm going to pay a 100% of the costs. So if that doctor charges $100 and that's his rate that he charges Blue Cross or whatever whatever, whatever carrier they happen to be using, that is the price that you're going to pay. Whether if you have a traditional plan that is not an HSA, you're going to pay whatever the office visit copay is. That is the biggest difference between HSA. HSAs, people shy away from them because they don't understand how it works. And if I don't go to the doctor an awful lot, HSAs can be very beneficial. Or if I actually have an HSA that is very low as far as deductible and and out-of-pocket maximums, even some of the the lowest deductible HSAs are going to be better than any traditional plan, even if you're paying all those benefits up front. What is the minimum deductible to qualify as a high deductible plan or the ballpark? So for that, it's $1,400, right? Okay. It's the minimum deductible individual um, can have for, to, to consider a qualified deductible uh, account. Now, is there traditional plans that are out there at $1,400? Sure. You just got to make sure that that $1,400 high deductible healthcare plan does not have any first dollar coverage. And you can usually determine based on information provided by the companies, whether it's a qualified high deductible plan. Is yeah, that correct? Most, yes. Most of the time they'll say HDHP um, mm-hmm. or they'll say HSA qualified. Um, so all the carriers will label that um, on their plan, but too many people just, look at the IRS and see deductible amount and just assume that their plan is qualified. And a lot of times it's not. So if, even if you have a $3,000 deductible traditional plan, that is not considered an HDHP. So qualified HDHP can be anywhere between 1400 to 6900 
deductible, but it has no first dollar coverage. That was critical. It's the first dollar coverage, which makes it an HSA qualified plan. Perfect. My family switched over to the high deductible plan in order to contribute to the HSA last year. And I will tell you, you know, when we we have some prescriptions in our family. And so when we were filling those prescriptions, my husband texted <laughs> me from the line at CVS and said, um, is, is there a problem with the insurance? So you need to be prepared for it. But it's a really terrific um, consideration, especially for high earning families where you're looking for extra ways to have um, tax reductions, to have some um, a, some boost to your retirement savings. And I really asterisk it for families um, where you plan to have an early retirement um, because that's one of the best ways to put money aside for paying for medical premium um, in the years prior to um, being a qualified for Medicare coverage. Yep. So you, you can use um, HSA funds to pay for Medicare premiums, which is a huge benefit. Um, you can't do that with an FSA. Um, a lot of people think they can, but uh, it's a no-no because you're double dipping. So the HSA premiums that you've saved or banked or even put in uh, in later years, if you were to qualify for um, for Medicare, uh, then you can use those funds in your HSA account to pay for those premiums. Perfect. I We need a whole episode on health savings accounts because there's a lot of other considerations, making sure that if it is a long-term saving strategy, that you're not spending it all each year mm-hmm. um, where you, you're trying to use the strategy and then and then forgot about it. Also um, converting it into an investment vehicle, not just a cash holding vehicle. So we'll, we'll make sure to circle back to that at some point. And we also have some great resources on health savings accounts for people to remember. But mm-hmm. I want to cover some other aspects of um, open enrollment while we have your time, Adam. Sure. Um, so some other decisions um, that are often included are um, dental and vision insurance. And, and should somebody, you know, elect dental and vision? And, and what are the considerations when you look at it? Uh, so there's two things uh, when it comes to dental that are major considerations um, is the annual benefit. So dental works different than medical. As a matter of fact, it works just the opposite. There is a small deductible in some plans, and usually it's anywhere between zero and fifty dollars per individual, um, and anywhere between you know seventy-five to one hundred and fifty for the family. Uh, but those are small base compared to what the annual benefit is. Most plans, even though it's been years and years, uh, some are up to a thousand-dollar annual benefit. That means if the dental once the dental company cuts a check up to $1,000, they're done paying and you have to pay for the rest. So if, if, you know, cleanings count, if cleaning costs $150, that $150 gets taken away from your annual, your annual uh, benefit. Now there is some carriers that go all the way up to 5,000. That all depends on what your employer plan has decided to go with. Um, But yeah, that is one. Uh, The second thing to consider with Dell is if it's a, a, a good benefit for you is how they classify each benefit, whether if it's a root canal, a crown, if there's implant coverage, um, most all plans under basic um, have what they call a filling, right? So you have your, your I'm sorry, uh, your minor, right? Your basic is your fillings, your, uh, or I'm sorry, your cleanings, your x-rays. In uh, minor is what they considered um, fillings. Um, you know, if, if you need, um, a deep cleaning, sometimes they consider it basic and that, or uh, you consider minor instead of basic. 
but one that I find that fluctuates between basic and or between minor and major is root canals. So root canals, I would say close to 60% of the time, maybe even 70% of the time will fall into what they call major. And those have much different benefit structures than those that would fall under minor. A plan that has a minor coverage for root canals, your cost savings can be significant. Now, that also applies more to your annual maximum quicker, but the out-of-pocket costs. So if I'm not getting a ton of root canals, right? God, let's hope nobody's getting a ton of root canals. Please. Um, but I mean, root canals can be very expensive. Uh, they're about $400, $500 to get root canal. And if it's covered either at the 50% on the major or anywhere between you know 80 to 70% on the basic or on the minor, that's a big cost difference. That means if it's covered at you know 80% on the minor, that means you're only responsible for covering 20% of the cost after a very small or if any deductible. And if it's a major, that means you're responsible for 50% of the cost. So it could be a huge, huge savings. So those are the two things that I really look at um, is number one, where are those, you know, the, the minor and major coverages fall into? Um, another one is that annual maximum. Is the annual maximum worth having depending on the premium that I'm paying? Perfect. And then how about vision? Also often a choice in open enrollment. Vision, vision is one of those, uh, one of those strange ones where um, is it worth paying vision if I don't have glasses, right? Or don't wear contacts. And that is one of those where if I have a family, even if none of the people in my family don't wear glasses or contacts, I feel it's a benefit because everybody can get an exam. And a lot of times when you combine all of those exam costs are cheaper than you would pay for the premium. If it's an individual, that's a different story, right? I mean, you can get an exam now for about $60, and that's about what you would pay in premium for an individual for the year. The benefit is, is let's say you go do see, get a vision, and you know your, your vision isn't perfect. You know, the older you get, it's much harder to see. <laughs> um, but what that does is it gives you a benefit towards the purchase of lenses or frames, um, contacts, whichever whichever one you're interested in. It does give you a level of discount. And there's a game that you can play when it comes to deals because they're just like anybody else. They want to sell you a product. You can, you can negotiate with them um, as far as you know, pricing for frames and things like that. But I mean, is there some benefit in, to division? Absolutely. Even for yeah. people who don't wear glasses. I think when it comes right down to it, you want to figure out what your costs are going to be, which you should be able to calculate. Mm-hmm. as you're making your decision and then and then try to forecast both what you think an average cost would be and then you know what happens when something goes bump in the night so exactly. you know um don't assume that if this year was a healthy year that every year will be so so always be planning also for an emergency sure. um and then there are sometimes FSA or flexible spending account options um that could you could set aside money um, this would not be an option if an HSA was an option typically, I think, um, but for childcare or medical costs. Yeah. So they, they do what they have is, um, what they call a limited spent limited, um, 
FSA. Okay. So they can use those dollars strictly. So if you have an HSA account and or an HSA qualified plan and, and contributing to the HSA, if your employer offers a limited FSA, you can contribute to that limited FSA. But now your what you can deduct for on that FSA is limited on dental and vision. Mm. So you can't use those FSA dollars to reimburse yourself for medical if you're contributing to an HSA. Okay. And you, again, you really want to forecast out, don't oversave um, and think about what would change next year. Because the biggest difference between HSA and FSA, which this confuses a lot of people and scares a lot of people in HSA, they think if you, you don't use it, you lose it. An HSA, once it's in that account, it's yours forever. Yeah, you could use it at age 99. Correct. Now, FSA, it's a different story. FSA, if you're making contributions to a medical or dependent care FSA, based on that plan year, at the end of the year, if you do not spend those dollars, one of two things can happen. They really allow you to roll over $500 on the medical or zero. You have three months to spend it off. So, there is some, you know, gamble you're taking on the FSA um, versus an HSA, but for a lot of people, that gamble's worth it. If you're in a traditional healthcare plan and you know you have costs, so I, I know I use drugs, you know, as one that you can always, always kind of depend on what you're going to pay if you're taking drugs. Another one is, you know, if I see a specialist, chances are you're making regular trips to the doctor whether it be the PCP or the specialist. So if you take those into consideration, you can save a lot of money because it's also deducted. That's also um, no tax is taken away when you put, when you um, contribute to an FSA. I always look at if your, if your employer provides the $500 rollover, put the minimum, put, put the $500 in. There's no harm in doing that. Then you have two years to kind of spend down that $500 if you don't spend it down the first year. Makes sense. Kind of, kind of gives you an idea of what you're going to actually spend over the year. Mm-hmm. For sure. So that covers the meat of our conversation, but I wanted to cover a couple more things. One of them is in a few cases, you may get some choices on life insurance or disability insurance. Mm-hmm. Um And this is also, if you did have some employee benefits that you didn't have a choice on, on life or disability, you'd want to be thinking about, is this adequate coverage? Because so so many times I think um, those types of insurances become an afterthought and you just don't get a second chance if something goes wrong to fix it. Um, Any comments on those types of insurances? Yeah, now it kind of reverts back to my experiences as a financial advisor to where most of the time, yeah, the benefits that are created or that are offered through the employer are great to have. There's no question. Absolutely. But a lot of the times it doesn't cover enough. That's why you want to sit down with somebody to say, okay, this is what my employer offers. This is what I get. This is what I have. How much do I need? It's a completely different conversation. Most of the time your employer isn't asking you how much you need. And sometimes the insurance that you get through your employer is very cost-effective. And in other times we run quotes to compare and we say, actually you're overpaying versus what you get on the market for a policy that would have much more straightforward portability and and, um, straightforward ownership for you without rates changing. 
a lot of times there is some portability and convertible and convertible, mm-hmm. but those are to policies that, that they become they're just not affordable. Right. right? As you, you get older. Them into whole life or and it just gets really, really expensive. Uh, I mean, that is the benefit of working for the employer is to have those benefits. But once you separate from that employer, those plans no longer become affordable most of the time. Right. And then I think one of the challenges is you're a busy family, you know, benefit open enrollment time comes, you mentioned it as an aside to your spouse and it's like onto the soccer game or whatever. Um, and maybe you're both working. So you need to coordinate between two open enrollment periods. Um, how do you make those decisions effectively um, and accurately? Because you can't just, you know, you can't go and both sign each other up. Um, right. You need to coordinate your coverage. How how does that work? What are your suggestions for success in that strategy? So I would say about 70% of the time, um, the spouse's, each, each spouse's um, employee benefits usually fall into play in January. That's not always the case. So then it comes a lot of times to company policy. If I enroll my spouse and then once my spouse's open enrollment time comes, am I allowed to drop her off the plan from my plan so she can enroll in her plan? That's when it comes down to the company policies. Does your company policy allow you to drop coverage because she has coverage somewhere else? That isn't an automatic. A lot of times you have to wait to open enrollment, drop your spouse. Now she has a qualifying event. Now she can have a special enrollment period with her employer to enroll in her healthcare coverage. So it's really critical to sit down if you have a spouse that also has benefits that are available to them, when that open enrollment period is, and sit down and make that decision and saying, okay, is it better for you to be on yours and me to be on mine? Or is it better for the kids to be on yours and the kids to be on mine? And a lot of times when they when you coordinate coverage, so that means you can have multiple coverages on them, they'll usually coordinate to the um, the child's birth date that is closest to the spouse. Interesting. And that becomes their main coverage and the other spouse's coverage then becomes secondary. Okay. A lot of things to consider, um, but mainly is making sure that if you have a different open enrollment period, um, making sure that if your employer allows for you to remove your spouse, if your spouse then will become eligible for her for their uh, coverage. Perfect. Well, that's a lot to consider. And I'll add a couple other suggestions. One of them would be that if you, when you're doing these reviews and your open enrollment, I encourage you to also review your retirement savings. It is not linked typically to open enrollment, but it's a great time of year to say, you know, I've been contributing 7%, but my goal was to contribute more over time. Let's nudge it to eight or 9%. And I love the incremental bump ups, especially if you're getting a cost of living adjustment um, with your salary. So don't forget to pay attention to the other things that are tied to your employment, especially retirement savings. And then the second um, suggestion I'd make is that if you're not working with a financial planner, that they can be an assistant. Um, everybody is has a little bit different options um, because all the employers are different and your circumstances are certainly different from one person to another. So instead of relying on the water cooler for suggestions, 
um, look for information directly from your HR and look for information with a with someone who knows someone like Adam or um, the team here at Pearl Planning. And Adam, you've been a great resource for us here at Pearl Planning to help us set up our benefits. If you're a small employer or a company that is needing to review their benefits, how do they get in touch with you and what kind of services do you provide? The easiest way is to call me. Also reach out to me by email, adam at advanced with the dinsurance.net. But those are, that's really kind of the best way to contact me. That way I have all your information. I'll try, I usually try to reach out to you and get your information within 24 hours. Um, and one thing I would also consider um, at open enrollment, what a good thing to think about is beneficiaries. For sure. Thank you. There's one thing to always consider when it comes to open enrollment because beneficiaries change what, you know, you may have created that beneficiary six or seven years ago, life changes. You didn't think about changing your beneficiary. That is the one time where it's a great time to reassess. Is that open enrollment? I a hundred percent agree. You know, get make your housekeeping easy by linking it to a regular part of the calendar year. If you're listening to this episode now and no open enrollment is coming in November, you know, make a little tag. Hey, refer back to this or that. Make some notes about some things you want to look into. And please don't be passive when it comes to your benefit selections. Make informed decisions. And if you don't have the right answers, um, talk to the experts that can help you out. Great. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was, it was a really, it was a pleasure. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Thank you. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about Pearl Planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter also found on our website.